do 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 beep beep beep. Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the US Centre at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson. And Mexico will pay for the wall. One of my first acts will be to get all of the drug lords, all of the bad ones. We have some bad, bad people in this country that have to go out. We're going to get them out. We're going to secure the border. And once the border is secured, at a later date, we'll make a determination as to the rest. But we have some bad hombres here, and we're going to get them out. Even though President Donald Trump often emphasizes putting Americans first, there's another nationality that often is highlighted in his rhetoric. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. So why have Latinos become the focus of such animus and such degradation? What's behind this specific racism? This episode, we're diving into the fear, resentment, and history behind racism towards Latinos. We'll see that this is not a recent phenomenon. So, let's go back to the beginning. Seems like a good place to start. How integral, how intertwined are Latinos with the history of the United States, especially with the growth of the U.S. across the North American continent? But they've been involved in U.S. history since the the very beginning, since the 18th century, right? That is Professor Neil Foley. Well, my name is Neil Foley. Um, I am a professor of history at Southern Methodist University and the co-director of the Center or Southwest Studies. Um, and I can't, obviously, in the short time we have, sort of give you a, a precy of um, Hispanics in the U.S., but if you think of the 18th century, you will probably remember, if you uh, remember your American history, um, that Florida belonged to Spain, as did the Louisiana territories, which much greater area than Louisiana as the state. And the Spanish governor of Louisiana, a man named Bernardo de Galvez, was instrumental in helping George Washington to... Um, uh, defeat the British, even though Spain and England were not at war with each other. Um, so that's just one example of the overlap and interconnectedness of Spain and the United States. And of course, you know, I mean, if you fast forward a, a century or more to 1898, you're, you know, we're at war with Spain. Um, and, you know, we take uh, the Philippines and, and, and uh, uh, Cuba and Puerto Rico. And then, of course, most people who want to talk about uh, Latinos in the U.S. talk about uh, Cubans and Puerto Ricans and Mexicans. But the elephant in the living room are the, are the Mexicans. And there's a good reason for that because in the middle of the 19th century, the United States seized the northern half of Mexico in a war in 1846, the U.S.-Mexico War. The Mexicans call it the War of the Northern Invasion. And it was basically a land grab. I've never met a single historian that thinks it was anything but an aggressive war to steal from Mexico what Mexico would not sell to the United States. Thomas Jefferson tried to buy his way to California, and the Mexicans weren't interested in selling the northern half of their country, period. So it had to be seized uh, from the perspective of the United States uh, because they believed that they were owed a, um, an empire of continental proportions uh, from God, you know, and uh, crafted the 
ideology that we now know as Manifest Destiny to explain how it was um, um, not our fault that we had to trample over Indians and remove them to Indian territory and later into reservations, or to steal from Mexico uh, its northern half. It's just what you had to do to fulfill your your divine providential destiny. So, both during the 2016 presidential campaign and since then, it seemed like Donald Trump has taken anti-Mexican rhetoric to a new height. Was this anything new? Uh, you mean the anti-Mexican sentiment? It's not new at all. I mean, I mean, most Americans, for example, I can't speak for Canadians or any other uh, group of people, almost every American has heard and knows something about the Alamo. All right, so uh, the first kind of contact that the United States had in a major way with Mexico is when westward-moving Anglo-Americans in search of land crossed the Sabine River between Louisiana and Texas, which was an international border at the time between the United States and Mexico, and um, and settled there. Stephen Mostyn uh, was given a land grant, his father Moses actually first, to settle uh, 300 families in what is now eastern Texas. But there was sense that of anti-Mexicanism even amongst them because they noticed that these were brown people and Anglo-Americans. Um, Look, you know, they didn't even like other white people who were of a different religion. So the people who established 13 colonies weren't real fond of Catholics. Um, and so the Spanish Empire is a Catholic empire. And so the Mexicans are sort of the, um, uh, sort of the um, offspring of the Spanish conquistadores who uh, weren't um, as careful uh, – with their mating habits, as the British were, so they uh, married Indians, and and uh, and so you had these this whole mixed race population that uh, Anglo Americans considered to be very inferior. So if you want to look at you know sort of anti Mexican racism, go back to you can all go back to the eighteen twenties and every decade since then. Now you know it goes underground. You don't really hear about Mexicans after the Operation Wetback in in nineteen fifty four. It's like the next time you hear about it is towards the middle to late 70s when um, Mexicans start to immigrate to the United States in large numbers as a result of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, which basically gave preference to family reunification. Um, and the media dubbed the 1980s the decade of the Hispanics. So, um, uh, you know, that was long before Trump's time, half a century ago, right? But um, so this latest iteration is um, just exactly that. It's what we call it Nuevo new, na new Nativism, New New Nativism. So if Donald Trump had been running in the recent past, say, eight or nine years ago, would he still have been as successful with his anti-Mexican racist rhetoric? Or did he come on the scene in a moment when this sentiment was more potent? Well... If it's, you're talking about just eight years ago, uh, yes, because, um, you know, it, I mean, a good way to think about this is post 9-11, right? So, um, so the fear was, you know, that the, the border needed to be sealed for national security purposes. Um, but there was this economic argument that Mexicans take our jobs. Um, but uh, so I would say there's a nuance of difference if if you know, if you go back to eight or nine years ago, what is what makes the present uh, cycle of nativism a little bit different is that um, 
it's not just about economics or even um, um, cultural change uh, so much as it is a realization of the irreversible uh, demographic trend that means that whites are going to be a minority in their own country, their own country, right? Um, uh, because that's the way they feel, that, that, that this is their country and that even though Mexicans have been part of the United States since 1848 when uh, the United States took the northern half of Mexico, you know, the, the idea that oh, what, what uh, Sarah Palin used to call the real Americans, right, she was finding in, in rural America, right, which is the whitest part of America. So if you're a person of color, um, as I am, you, you are very keen to, you know, these nuances of white people talking about race that way. You know, uh, I'm not a real American. Uh, they are. So why have Latinos become the focus of such animus and such degradation? And why specifically Mexicans? Well, first I would say they don't seize on, on, on all Latinos to create fear. Um, you know, uh, Latinos are, are, are a very, very large and diverse group globally, um, primarily in the Western Hemisphere, of course. But um, in the United States, um, we have, you know, Three large groups of Latinos, if you disaggregate Hispanics or Latinos, which are terms that are used pretty much interchangeably, um, you know, you have uh, of the um, 58 million Latinos in the United States, representing 18% of the population, uh, two-thirds of those are Mexican origin, okay? Um, and... Uh, the rest are broken down in smaller percentages. The next largest group are Puerto Ricans at 9%, and they're not immigrants. They're, they're U.S. citizens, colonized subjects who can't vote for president, but nevertheless, uh, they, they, uh, they can come from the island to continental United States with a driver's license or in some other kind of ID. They don't need a passport, and likewise, going the other way. Uh, and Cubans are the third largest group, and they're under 4%, and they all live in southern Florida for the most part. Um, and then you have uh, Central Americans, which are uh, um, an immigrant group that uh, is actually larger than the Cuban population. At 7%, it's really the third largest, but it, um, that group is made up primarily of the countries from what we call the Northern Triangle of Central America, El Salvador, uh, Honduras, and Guatemala. Um, uh, so we think of those as Central Americans, the sort of the main thrust of it. The real... Um, animus towards Latinos is aimed at Mexican origin people for an obvious reason, right? I mean, they are the elephant in the living room, as I said before. They are the largest uh, visible population of Latinos in this country. Two out of every three people are, are Mexican origin Latino. And then, of course, you've got a 2,000-mile border with Mexico and four border states, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, which have been overwhelmingly Latino for over a century, right? I don't mean overwhelming in the sense that, uh, with the exception of New Mexico, where they've always been a majority, uh, but what I mean is their percentage in various counties, particularly along the border, has sometimes uh, uh, reached 95%. Um, so um, they were more regionally located, but now they've dispersed into the South, the New England, and the upper Midwest. And uh, there is probably not an American today except... Uh, maybe a very um, old 
white person from a rural area of Iowa who's never met a Latino. And even that's dubious today. I mean, they're, they're in all 50 states, including Alaska and, and Hawaii. Um, so, yeah, I would say that uh, they don't, uh, as in the past, um, anti-Mexican sentiment uh, from the Alamo all the way through up to the Spanish-American War was anti-Mexican. So how much of this anti-Mexican sentiment is driven by economic competition? This idea is at the heart of the argument. They're, quote, stealing our jobs or even lowering our wages. How much does that play into this? So the, the short answer to your question is, it's not much. I mean, it was a rallying cry to say they take our jobs. But the fact of the matter is, um, uh, you know, most of the people hired Mexicans to do jobs that white people were not interested in doing, like cleaning their houses, being nannies, things like that. They were happy to do those kinds of jobs. Um, uh, if you ask a lot of Americans, you know, what jobs are being taken, they're hard-pressed to answer that question. Um, um, and I think today you don't hear that so much anymore. It's, it's, they take our culture. They're robbing us of, of what it means to be in America. You know, the, the browning of America is something that transcends the economics of these changes. It's about who are we as a people, right? And this is not just something that's happening in the United States. It's happening all over Europe as well, right? This, you know, let's make France French again. I mean, you know, what's that mean? Uh, let's, uh, uh, let's reclaim the Netherlands for the Dutch, um, England for the English, you know, it's, it's, it's not because they take our jobs. It's because of something actually a lot more um, dark and uh, existential. That, uh, that um, there's fear here. This is a fear-based ideology. So looking ahead, what does America's Latino future look like? Um, I don't know that... Uh, if you're asking what is the future for Latinos, I think it's the future for any other immigrant group. I mean, the Mexican immigrant experience is very different because, number one, you know, they didn't cross an ocean. Um, and that the border they crossed is from one side of their country to the other side of their country. You know, as Mexicans like to say... Um, um, you know, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us, right? So we have to remember that Mexicans are living uh, a, a history of conquest, not a history of immigration. They, they were conquered by the United States. And even though um, uh, after 1848, the vast majority of Mexican origin people living in the American Southwest and in the United States more generally uh, are obviously people who have immigrated after 1848, the idea still is that, you know, these are indigenous people. We, myself, I mean, we carry the DNA of this hemisphere. We are not immigrants to this hemisphere. You are, you know. Um, the Brits are, all right. The Irish are, all right. Um, but uh, if you're a Mexican, um, you may have European blood in you, but you also have, by definition, Indian blood in you, right? I mean, that's where the brownness comes from. So, we are natives to the Western Hemisphere. So it's uh, the outliers in the hemisphere, frankly, are Canada and the United States. The rest of the hemisphere is brown, including the Caribbean, right? Brown and African. African, obviously, not by choice, right? They were brought over in chains, or as the Republicans like to say, they were immigrants in the, in the holds of the ships. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, so um, I think it's a, the future for Latinos is the future that uh, you can expect uh, Italians had and that Japanese and Chinese had. It was a rough road, still is. Certainly it is for black people, and they're not immigrants. I mean, we have Black Lives Matter, you know, half a century after the civil rights movement. That should tell us something. We're not making, we're not doing so good on the uh, civil rights, human rights frontier. Um, and, uh, you know, 50 years from now, there probably still be issues about Latinos, especially when they are, um, you know, going to be probably one third of the population of the United States. They're expected to be. Uh, over a quarter of the population by 2050. That's just around the corner. So um, there might be some backlash against their demographic significance um, in the future. But in the end, I think um, when all the dust settles, that we'll get back to the basics of the laws that were passed in the 60s that, you know, we can't make, we cannot discriminate between different types of, of citizens based on race, color, creed, national origin, sex, sexual orientation, or the like, you know, that um, when push comes to shove and we end up in the courts, it's always going to come down on the side of the, of the law and the Constitution, not on the prejudices of the people. So just, just quickly thinking about what you've described as that, that dark impulse that leads to the fear of Latinos and Mexicans, do you, is that just going to sort of kind of work itself out over time, do you think? Or are there any policies or well, Chris, things I, I, that can be... Yeah, I, I don't mean to interrupt you here, but 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 it's not a fear of Latinos. Right. It's not... A, they don't fear Latinos, right? What they fear is what's, what they, meaning, you know, sure. white people, right? Let's be honest here. That's what we're talking about. What, what they fear is that their country is changing in a way that they can't even begin to imagine can continue to exist as the America that they know it. Because no matter how many different iterations of America we've had since 1776, let's face it, I mean, we in a time machine went back, it'd be unrecognizable. The people, their language, their food would be like, what the hell, right? They can live with that because it's still different iterations of white people, European-descended white people doing their thing. You know, and, you know, so there's a pre-hot dog white America and there's a post-hot dog white America, right? Um, and the problem they're having now is, you know, you know, um, the pre-salsa and the post-salsa, right? So when they look at the demographic writing on the wall, they realize that white people are going to be less than 50% of the population in their, their lifetimes. Well, maybe not the older, older whites, but, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, 33 years from now or less, um, uh, and that's what they're afraid of. And there's no changing that. That's a demographic reality because white people aren't becoming a smaller percentage of the population because of immigration. Since 2010, the, what's driving the, the wedge between white people and the rest, demographically speaking, you know, the, the gap between uh, the declining white percentage of the population is birth rates. Whites aren't making babies. I don't know what we can do about that, you know. I mean, um, um, Hispanics don't have a, a super high fertility rate. It's only 2.4, 2.4 children per woman of childbearing age. That's very, very close to 2.1 for wh white women or other American women uh, during child. Right. So, no, there's the fear is that they can't imagine America as a country where they are a minority, they're trying to imagine a South Asian Indian president. They're trying to imagine, you know, a Muslim. 
secretary of state or an atheist or, you know, a, a trans person or a lesbian, um, not just as a mayor because we have them now, but, you know, in a cabinet position or as a vice president or president, right? These are things that um, uh, they fear. So the Latino demographic reality is one facet of that fear. They're fearing all the changes that are going on in the United States. Uh, from their perspective, you know, the fact that trans people may get their right to use the bathrooms of their gender identity rather than their birth, uh, their sex identity is a sign that America is going to hell in a handbasket, right? They don't like the direction it's going in. So th it's a fear based on uh, a lot of things besides just demographics and Latinos. I'm joined now by my co-host, Sophie Donzerman. Hi, Sophie. Hey, Chris. And I'm also joined by Dr. Susanna Crockford, who's just finished her PhD in anthropology here at the LSE. She is also a frequent contributor to our USAP blog. Thanks for joining us, Susanna. So let's start out by touching on your research. So if there's any space that seems to embody the conflict between white Americans and Latinos, it would be the southern border shared with Mexico. So you've spent some time living fairly close to that borderland. What did you learn about this racial conflict and anxiety while researching and living there? Yeah, so I guess the first thing about this question that really makes me pause is characterizing it as a racial conflict. When you live there every day, you know, Latinos and whites are not in conflict. You know, they live next to each other. They work together. You know, there is not this great kind of racial tension in the streets, as you may get the impression that there is in the America when you constantly read news reports about things like Charlottesville, you get this like sense that, wow, things are really, you know, really tense over there. And actually, I think on a day to day level for most people, it's not. And my impression living in Arizona on and off since 2012 is just that, you know, people just get on with their daily lives. Saying that, there is a certain segment of the population that does get incredibly angry about especially things like immigration. And that kind of covers a whole continuum of thinking that immigration is wrong and people are breaking the law and therefore it's a kind of a security issue and it's a crime issue. And then you've got the other end, which is, you know, very kind of anti-Mexican, anti-Latino. You know, we've got to get these people out of our country because, you know, it's, it is a racial attack. Um, now, I would say that those people are a very small minority, and I think that you've got to distinguish between between a level of kind of ideals and ideology and reality. So there's a sense that in terms of the ideology, it is like kind of termed as this very racial conflict. But these same people who may inhabit this very kind of racialized ideology may then take part in their daily lives and be perfectly nice to Latinos and Mexicans, employ them, work with them. So I think that that's a really important uh, distinction to make. But having said that, I would say the other thing that really marks Arizona in particular is segregation. So and obviously it's de facto segregation. But you will find that certain parts of the town are mostly inhabited by Latinos and certain parts of the town are inhabited mostly by whites. And sometimes it's even on the... So, for example, in Tucson, you've got like the south side of Tucson, which is almost entirely Latino. And then the kind of the suburbs, which are a lot wealthier, places like Oro Valley, are almost entirely white. And 
you wouldn't find very much kind of movement between these places in terms of residence. And you can see it again as well in certain jobs. So, for example, food service, I knew quite a lot of people who work there. Like when you go to work in food service, if you're a Latino, you will be put in the kitchen. And if you are white, you will be serving on the floor. And that was almost the same in every single restaurant in, I, that I both went to and spoke to people who worked in there. So there is this kind of level of segregation that exists on an everyday kind of habitus that people just kind of accept. But when you kind of analyze it, you can see that, you know, you know, this is this is a racially polarized society. Um, and there's, you know, and it, it exists on so many levels as well. Like the town I mostly lived in was called Sedona. Um, and there was like one end of town in particular where you have all the cheaper low income housing and that's where all the Mexicans lived and that's where all the Latinos lived. And, you know, when you go to the center of town, which is all the beautiful bit with these million dollar homes, that's nearly entirely white people. And I think it's one of the things that kind of this level of separation makes it really hard to understand the problems that exist because you just don't see them. Um, and if the people aren't in your area that are suffering from things like crackdowns on immigration, then you won't think it's such a problem. And it's much easier than to get this ideology that all immigrants are bad because you don't know any immigrants. Your neighborhoods aren't being raided by ICE, you know, and then it doesn't seem like such a problem. Because again, your reality is quite separated from your ideology in that way. Just to, to pick up quickly on, on the, the point about segregation, do you think the segregation is, what, how would you describe the relationship between class and segregation? Does segregation lead to class segmentation? Or is it just the fact that a lot of Latinos come and, and tend to do stereotypically lower wage or service jobs, but it sounds like there's a lot of discrimination in terms of where they're working. How, how does that operate? Yeah, I think it's incredibly difficult to separate race and class in America. I think they're absolutely connected. Um, so in terms of Latinos in Arizona, you know, there is definitely discrimination on the level of jobs and housing. So you will find it much harder to get a house in a certain area if you're a Latino. And then also it is much cheaper in the areas and you want to be around the places in where you have connections in the community. So, you know, you'll move to where you've got family and that's perfectly normal. Um, and there is the, the sense that those because those houses are cheaper, then you can work these low paid jobs and then that all kind of works together. But then it also works together to make sure there's quite a rigid class structure. So there isn't a lot of mobility and it is, it's tied to both race and class because it's very dependent on your income. But then again, it's also reinforced by people's prejudices and sometimes implicit and structural prejudices. So for example, a lot of neighborhoods uh, especially wealthier neighborhoods will restrict residents to people who do not have criminal records. So if you have any kind of felony or sometimes even a misdemeanor, you can't live in that area. So especially so for gated communities. And, you know, often when people read this, they're like, oh, yeah, that's fine. I don't want criminals near me. But when you consider the criminal justice system in America, there's some ridiculous percentage of young men, especially black and Latino, but also white young men have got some form of criminal record. And so they are structurally disadvantaged in, in numerous ways, not just in terms of residence. And there's, this, again, reinforces this same segregation. So that if you end up with some kind of felony or even just a misdemeanor, you, know, you won't be able to get the same level of jobs. You won't be able to move in certain places. And then when, unfortunately, as it is, the criminal justice system is racially biased against certain groups for Latino, this further kind of ossifies the system where they are only allowed in certain places. I'm wondering if you noticed any segregation 
between Latino groups. And obviously those who emigrated to Arizona from Mexico aren't the same as those who came from the Northern Triangle. Mm -hmm. Did you see that kind of segregation or once everyone had kind of left their homeland and entered this alien place where they all won? It's not something that I saw directly myself very much. Um, where I lived in northern Arizona, there are far fewer Latinos in general. Um, and those that are there are generally Mexican. Again, uh, kind of putting it in very broad terms. I think there is more of that kind of level of segregation and kind of just like kind of gravitating towards people from your own, from your own country of origin in southern Arizona. Um, one thing I have heard and read about is that there is quite a lot of discrimination by Mexicans to people from Central America, that they're, they're seen as kind of lower class and you know, all the negative as associations that you want, that you kind of bring forth when you want to restrict someone and make them an outgroup. Um, but it's not something that I observed personally, it, but I, I've heard that it does exist, yeah. Going back to, to Neil Foley's interview that we've heard, he seemed to dismiss the idea that economic competition between racial groups is at the heart of racial animus. And he actually highlighted that there's an anxiety about culture and national identity as being at the heart of why Americans feel threatened. What, given what we've just talked about, what do you think about this? Yeah, I thought that was an interesting statement. I mean, on one level, he's right. Uh, you know, white people aren't competing for the jobs being taken by Mexican and other Central American immigrants. You know, they're not being farm workers. They're not working in the meat industry. Um, and they don't want to. <laughs> um, but, the, you know, this is, again, I would come back to the difference I made between reality and ideology. The people who are kind of conveying this very anti-immigrant sentiment they will say one thing, they're taking out their jobs, but the other side of that is they're living on our benefits. So somehow Mexicans are both coming into America and taking our jobs and simultaneously too lazy to work and living on benefits. So this is entirely an ideology. It's not reality. It doesn't have anything really to do with the social reality of Mexican uh, or other Central American immigrants or indeed the people who've been there for generations. Um, but I think you can't you can't exclude economics from this kind of cultural anxiety, which does exist. You know, the especially the very rural white people that I knew in Arizona who often live um, in quite isolated communities in northern Arizona, they are incredibly afraid. Um, and it's a fear that's expressed as anger. And they have been so since you know, since I got there, you know, some of the first things I started hearing were like, you know, racial abuse to like aimed at President Obama and just like constant use of the N word. And I was shocked because I like was a very prim and proper British lady. And I was like, oh, my God, you can't say that. Um, <laughs> but And they would just talk like that. And I was just like, I don't understand where this is coming from. And the longer I've been working in this area, the more I've come to understand that it's this it's there's this struggle going on and it's been, I think it's been going on for hundreds of years in America for what America is. You know, how do you define America and who is a real American? And right now on the right amongst white conservatives who are more or less Christian, you have this kind of aggressive assertion of a certain kind of American, that an American drives a truck, speaks English, you know, is white and works in, you know, works in certain kinds of jobs, lives in certain kinds of areas has a gun, um, and that that's how you are a real American. And anyone else 
in any who does not fit into those groups doesn't really belong and this definitely comes from a place of fear i thought it was really interesting that neil foley talked about what was it the demographic writing on the wall because this has come up since the 2000 census and again the 2010 census that by 2050 white americans will be in the minority and they have been there are certain groups that have been terrified of this and you can correlate it with all kinds of uh very worrying trends in Arizona, for example, the rise in vigilante action. You had things like the Minutemen Project and now the Arizona Border Recon. These all started from that time around in 2000 when they started to feel like there was this flood of immigrants and they were going to overrun white society. And what it, what they're basically afraid of is a loss of white hegemony. In their minds, if whites are not the majority, that means whites aren't in control. And if whites aren't in control, that means they will lose status. And you have to understand these people are often you know, they're not necessarily the poorest, but they're also not, you know, they're not elites. They're not the richest in society. So loss for them is a very kind of personal, like, feeling of like, you know, I won't have the things I have and I don't feel like I have that many things to begin with. So if these Mexicans come and take the few things I have, you know, what will I have then? So it's, in some way, it's a very understandable fear. Um, But on the other hand, it is deeply racist. You know, there is no real fix for this. America is changing demographically. And one thing I really wanted to pick up was the importance of the census, because the current census director quit under the Trump administration. And I don't actually think they've replaced him yet. And they have not funded the census properly and counting matters. And I think one thing you may see in the 2020 census is a massive undercounting of Latinos. And that means less services, that means less representation, and that also can be used for political purposes and how you're trying to define white society as American society. It's a fascinating point. Numbers are really important. Mm. On that point, I think we have to wrap it up. But uh, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Susanna Crockford. Fantastic to speak to you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, that's it for this episode of The Bold Time. Thank you to Neil Foley and Susanna Crockford. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron with contributions from co-hosts Sophie Donzelman and Chris Gilson. That's me. And also with help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. They're the cat's meow. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the US Center or of the London School of Economics. Next month, at The Ballpark. But then I think the changes in the economy and the way jobs have changed and disappeared in a lot of rural communities has also contributed to people feeling like something is wrong here. So, thanks for listening. Fantastic. Thank you so much.